Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? How are you feeling? How are you coping? How are you doing? How are you, how are you hanging? How are you... Um, I ran out of how are yous. I ran out of things to put after how are you. But there you go. Don't worry about it. Let's not worry about it. It's Friday. It's nearly the weekend. It still means something, surely, the weekend. Surely. It has to. I know there's a sameness and all that kind of stuff that we've talked about lots of times before, but people do stuff at the weekends, right? They do their quizzes and they, they have family movie nights and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we're, we're getting there. We're getting towards that right now. You know, lots of people still working Monday to Friday, nine to five, even if they are working from home. So there's still that ability to switch off. Of course, I know there are a lot of people out there listening to this who aren't working at all. I hope you're doing okay. Hope everything's going all right. And I hope things, uh, you know, pick up for you soon. And uh, of course, by by extension, that would mean things are picking up for everybody and, and things might be opening up again, which would be great, of course. But, you know, it's got to be safe and it's got to be the right time for these things to happen. Uh, I, I don't know. I still find it strange, despite we've, you know, the fact we've had weeks, maybe a couple of months now to get to get used to this, the idea that you... You just can't go out anywhere. You can't go and uh, go to a shop or go to a bar or go to a restaurant or a cafe or just meet some friends uh, in a public place is is strange. We got some stuff this week um, or last week here in Ireland about what might happen as and when the pubs are open again. They're looking at August and there were some measures pr- proposed by the Vintners Association here in Ireland, about what pubs might be like when they open again. And this is this is what they say. Bars will become dispense bars only, with no sitting, standing, ordering, payment, or drinking at the bar allowed. To me, that's quite uh, disheartening. Um, you know, it's not that you want to be in a bar every day of the week, but I like sitting at a bar. When I go to a bar, I like a seat at the bar, assuming the bar is the right kind of bar to sit at the bar. Not every bar is a bar sitting bar but a good bar sitting bar is a is a is a thing to cherish in my opinion so that's something that we're not going to be able to do table service um only which means that you you'll be sat at a table and uh somebody will come along and take your order numbers on the premises confined to no more than four people every 10 square meters a maximum of six people will be permitted at any one table which you know how is that more than 10 square meters? I don't know. You've got to use hand sanitizer upon entry. All customers must remain seated. 
staff will be fully trained, etc., etc. They'll have to wash their hands. Um, limits on who can go to the toilet at, uh, at any one time. And also no live music or DJs to be allowed, which, you know, it doesn't really make it sound like the pub is the place you want to be. I know we all want to go out, we all want to socialize, but it's sort of like the social equivalent of football behind closed doors. You know it's the thing, but it's not really the thing you want. It is there and you can do it, but is it really what it was and what it should be? I don't know. Maybe this is the reality we've got to face. Um uh, as we go forward and hopefully uh, gradually get back to some kind of normality in terms of how we used to live life, the question is, what is going to be there when all this opens up again? How many businesses are going to survive? How many small pubs, bars, restaurants, cafes, etc. are going to be open for us? Um, it feels like the streets and the high streets and the rows of shops and stuff are going to be, there's going to be a fair amount of um, shuttered down premises for, for quite some time. But look, let's get everybody healthy first and then we can consider that. A little bit later on in this podcast, I will be chatting to comedian and podcaster, who I'm sure many of you know, Adam Buxton. Uh, he's got a, an audio book out uh, in the last week or so, which I'm listening to, and it's really, really good. So we're going to talk about audio books and podcasts and TV series and just have a long rambly chat with Adam. So that's coming up a little bit later on. But first, one of the issues that has, um, if not caught a lot of attention, but some attention, and is probably one of the reasons why there's this push to get football back. We, we think it's finance. We think it's uh, clubs losing money, which of course is playing a fa- uh, part in this. We think it's TV broadcasters that want something to show. Of course that's playing a part in it. Uh, you know, there's sporting integrity. <laughs> there is uh, sponsors and commercial interests and all those kind of things. But player contracts, player contracts are a big, big issue because they're due to expire. Um, some of them, not all of them, of course, because players still have time left on their contracts. They are due to expire on June the 30th, some of them. And then, of course, it's the transfer window and what, what implications we will have for that. But but FIFA have issued some guidelines, but they are only guidelines. And what are the legal ramifications of uh, these contractual situations for the players, for the clubs? Can, can players uh, choose not to extend their contracts, even if it's been suggested? So I thought we might get a legal look at this. And with me is an Arsenal season ticket holder, but also a dispute resolution slash litigation lawyer with Linklaters. His name is Jason Shardlow Rest. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me on. No, thank you for your time and your expertise on this. Just broadly, before we get into the specifics, what what precisely um, is your area of law and what what does that necessarily mean, dispute resolution and litigation lawyer? Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm a dispute resolution and litigation lawyer. I think what you know, what that broadly encompasses is is helping clients where they might be involved with uh, disputes with commercial third parties. Um, So that might be live litigation itself, whether in court proceedings or in arbitration, um, but also sort of advising them whether they be um, instigating those proceedings or being on the receiving end of them as to what, um, you know, the the best approaches that they can take, um, including in a a commercial context. And just a bit of background on on Linklater's more broadly, we've... um, our sports sector um, is cross-practice, so in various areas that cover finance, um, corporate mergers and acquisitions, 
um, dispute resolution, um, but also sort of employment issues. So quite a wide reaching sports sector practice. Okay, so we all know that COVID-19 and the uh, the impact that it's having across the world and society is is uh, an issue that sport is is having to deal with and i think we you know just to say at the start um, you know, we're aware that there are obviously uh, more serious things going on and, and everything else, but this is a, a conversation um, based around the impact that it is going to have on, on football and sport. And you've written a piece for the Linklater's website, which uh, goes into some detail on some of the potential issues which uh, exist around player contracts. As I mentioned, the 30th of June was typically the point where player contracts uh, run to, um, and it doesn't look as if seasons are going going to be finished certainly not in England and Spain and Italy uh, before June the 30th and there are uh, obviously uh, issues with the transfer window etc etc but just a sort of broad outline on on what that piece which I will link to in the show notes for this um, uh, touches on. Yeah, so um, I wrote the piece um, with a sort of dual focus of dispute resolution and, pl- and employment with uh, a couple of my colleagues from um, employment practices, both in the UK and Germany. So there's a focus both on, on the Premier League and, and the German Bundesliga. And so the, what we've been focusing on in particular is um, those sort of dual issues that you mentioned. So the first is in terms of sort of player contracts, which both in uh, England and Germany... Um, and those who are fans of football manager might recall this as well, the contracts <laughs> expire on 30th of June um, and, and new contracts can then uh, commence on the 1st of July. Um, and also the, the issue of, of the transfer window itself. Um, so taking the Premier League, for example, um, the transfer window opens on the later of, and, and it gets slightly complicated, but on the later of, the last fixture of the existing season, which is, as listeners will know, is typically May, or the date that falls 12 weeks before the deadline, which uh, would be the 10th of June. So um, we're in a situation where the later of those two dates is clearly going to be the end date of the season, assuming we can have that. Mm. Um, And that means that realistically, um, players could find themselves. uh, So firstly, the transfer window Um, would potentially need to be moved in order for transfers to actually be possible. Um, But secondly, players could find themselves under the existing terms of their contracts for those expiring this year on the 30th of June uh, without a club. And clubs, obviously, on the flip side of that, finding themselves losing key players for the remainder of the season. Mm. So FIFA have introduced some, what I think are guidelines rather than hard and fast rules about what might happen in terms of contract uh, contracts. I mean, can you, can you outline what those are? Um, and then we can discuss the potential ramifications and, and how enforceable these things are. Yeah, so taking a, a step back, the clubs are, are subject to a, a sort of web of, of rules. And amongst those are FIFA's regulations on the status and transfer of players. And, and those rules are best to think of with sort of two tiers. Some have compulsory rules, others set parameters for national associations to then set uh, the specifics of the rules themselves in accordance with with relevant law. So um, for Arsenal and for English clubs, um, that would mean uh, the FA and Premier League setting rules in accordance with English law. Um, Obviously, in in the situation we're in, um, FIFA took the view and set up a coronavirus working group in March this year, 
um, to consider whether there might need to be variations or temporary dispensations to those rules um, in light of the contractual and transfer issues that we've discussed. Mm. And so they published on the 7th of April, um, you're right, that they're non-binding guidelines, um, which effectively invite member associations to uh, a long work alongside clubs and players in order to uh, vary the arrangements that are in place for player and coach contracts, as well as uh, changes that might need to be made for the transfer window. You're right that they're non-binding. Um, and I think that's a nod to quite how complicated the issues are, that uh, the autonomy of uh, individual contracting parties is important. So mm. you and I enter into a contract with the two parties to that contract, and it's um, extremely unusual um, for amendments to be imposed upon you within your contract itself. Um, would it be helpful for me to sort of talk through what exactly FIFA proposed in those guidelines? Yeah, sure. Just sort of give us a, a brief synopsis of what those guidelines are, and then we can look at how they might apply, uh, you know, to football in general, but obviously to, to sort of look at the Arsenal situation a little bit as well, which, um, you know, is obviously more relevant to this. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think the, the kind of key takeaways from the guidelines are um, that, that the first one, contracts that are due to expire on the 30th of June, um, the guidelines suggest that those contracts should now be extended until the new end date of the season and contracts due to commence at the start date of the new season. So 1st July under the existing arrangements should be delayed until the new start date of the new new season as that's to be defined. Mm. Um, the, the second is that clubs and players, and I think you know we've seen this in an, in an Arsenal context uh, amongst others, clubs and players are strongly encouraged to work together to find appropriate agreements on salary reductions and wage deferrals at a club and league level. Mm -hmm. um, and it was recognised that unilateral decisions, so clubs making decisions on, uh, on their own part, um, would only be recognised where they're compliant with national law. Um, in terms of transfers, uh, where there are overlapping seasons and transfer windows, so between different countries, the priority would be given to clubs currently owning a player to complete their domestic season with their original squad. So a focus on sporting integrity issues, I think, as a primary factor. Mm. And as part of that, any payments that would be made um, in accordance with those contracts were to be delayed until the new start date of the new season or the opening of the, the revised transfer window. And, and just lastly, on that point about season dates and transfer windows, FIFA indicated that it would consider amended end-of-season dates and transfer windows that were submitted to it by domestic associations on a case-by-case -case basis, but they were likely to be approved where they don't exceed a maximum of 16 weeks. So quite a lot of complicated sure. outlines, but non-binding, and, and I think putting quite a lot of impetus on national associations, clubs and players to then work with with those and take them forward. Sure, because I mean, I think, you know, at this point, it's difficult to know when seasons are going to, to recommence. Uh, we, we look at what's happening in Germany in the Bundesliga and potentially football is going to start again maybe next week or the week after, but it looks a long way away in, in other big associations like England, like Italy, like Spain. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that strikes me about well, everything that's being talked about here is 
is the lack of input from players themselves. So we've heard from club medics, we, we've heard from the Premier League, we've heard from the government about how important it is that football comes back for, for the morale of the nation and all that kind of nonsense. But, you know, we, we haven't heard a great deal from players themselves and about the risks uh, that they face, you know, going back into, uh, I, I suppose, a workplace where when everyone else is being told they, they have to uh, um, abide by social distancing rules, they're doing doing quite the opposite and particularly when sports starts again but but let me ask you you know when it comes to a player's contract and let's say the league doesn't kick off for a little while and the contract ends on the 30th of june arsenal don't have at the moment any um full-time players with contracts expiring in june there are some loan situations which i'm going to ask you about now but um let's say elsewhere a player's contract is ending at a club on the 30th of June. There is a dispensation for that contract to be extended to allow them to finish the season. You know, do they have to? Is that, you know, is that what you're talking about here where these individual agreements have to be made? I mean, there's no, uh, they're not compelled to take up this contract extension by rights. If they want to, they can say, my contract is done. That's it. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is is that you're right. Um, you know, it's complicated and individual negotiations of contracts, um, you know, particularly when these things go to the term of a player's contract. And, and as we've seen with compensation, they're, they're difficult. But the short answer is that, is that yes, it's a, a question of contractual autonomy. We've got non-binding guidelines and um, I've seen reports this morning suggest that there might be uh, sort of an allowance for contracts to be extended by up to three months. Um, But ultimately, it's a question for the player individually, um, at least as a matter of English law and the club that they're dealing with, as to whether or not they want to agree an extension. So quite conceivably, a player might decide, um, and you can think of circumstances where this might be the case, they might be out of favour, they might decide that they want to sort of bide their time and wait for next season, whenever that might be. But if a player is looking at a contract with a term that is expressly the 30th of June and they don't want to amend and extend that, mm. then then that is a player's right. Um, and, and you can see, you know, potential difficulty here in terms of, you know, potentially some contracts not being renewed. Yeah, and, and look, players who might have moves already lined up might have Bosman moves to a new club and you know, uh, are looking at what the potential implications might be if they play for another th- two or three months and somehow pick up an injury. You know, I don't quite know what the, the ins and outs of that might be, but it would certainly be a factor. Um, Arsenal have three players on loan as well. Danny Ceballos from Real Madrid, Pablo Marie, um, and Cedric Suarez. Um, those situations are going to be a little bit complicated as well because, again, those loan agreements, uh, I, I assume, um, run until uh, the 30th of June or perhaps the end of the, the season when the club plays its its last game. Um, are, are those going to be complicated issues for Arsenal to deal with? I think maybe in the case of Suarez and, and Pablo Marie, there's an intention to make those deals permanent but again it all comes back to when the transfer window might open yeah so again it's a complicated one and it's probably difficult to speak in detail in individual cases you know without having the contracts themselves Um, you know one of the key points is is the wording of the contracts themselves but I I think you're right that more generally these loan arrangements are likely to be tied in a lot of respects to the usual contractual periods Um, so running again from 
1st of July to 30th June in most scenarios. Um, so I think the same issues are likely to apply in terms of um, the sort of receiving club and the parent club then uh, trying to agree mm. variations of the terms and seeing if these things can sensibly be extended um, and, and, you know, what the terms would be for that that short extension. Um, you know, we're all, I think, aware in these times that one of the other considerations is that, that clubs, you know, not, not just Arsenal, but all clubs are likely to have cash flow considerations where revenues might not be coming in and clubs might also form their own view you know looking away from what players want to do but clubs might have their own view on you know what they were budgeting up to Mm. the 30th of june and you know whether they want to continue playing paying players um whether that's those on loan or, or or those that they own themselves outright yeah that is uh gonna be part of the thinking and and just when it comes to um, the transfer market and what might happen. And I, I think we we all know that the transfer market as we know it is not going to be what it was when it does open again. Maybe in time it will become this obscene thing again where hundreds of millions of pounds are spent on acquiring the services of, of human beings. Um, but in the short term, at least it seems like um, that's not going to be the case, and, and certainly the money issues that clubs are facing are, are going to be uh, fairly huge. Um, is it a case that we're just going to have to wait until something happens before we know what the what the the impact has has fully been? Because clubs have got to decide whether or not they give new contracts to players, and this is where it gets a little bit interesting for Arsenal because if you look at the amount of players that are out of contract. In 2021, that's this time next year, Socrates, Mesut Ozil, David Luiz, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Skodra Mustafi, Bukayo Saka, uh, those, are, those are situations that I, you know, ordinarily would be routine to deal with, or, or certainly within the realms of experience. Some players you don't want to lose, some players you're quite happy to let go. Um, some players this summer, for example, might have been sold to generate funds before they left on a free. So um, we don't quite know what the what the agents are going to tell players, what the clubs are going to want to do, whether they can afford to bring in replacements, whether they're forced to sort of extend contracts despite the fact they don't really want to. Um, it feels like something we're just going to have to wait and see um, how it plays out. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean... You know, the, the first and foremost thing is that I, I think clubs, players, all stakeholders, um, you know, will be waiting to see, I think, with interest in particular in, in England, you know, what the government's updated guidance is on Sunday. Um, and I understand that Premier League clubs are discussing then on Monday where, where things stand from their perspective and what comes next. But I think um, you're right that it, there is a huge element of wait and see here in terms of um, how long things remain as they are, whether football can restart what the impact is commercially on, on clubs' revenues and what that means for uh, any transfer window as and when that is moved and can actually open. But what clubs, including Arsenal, then do in terms of the way they view the players' contracts that they have. I mean, it's all speculation at this point, but you can see a scenario in which clubs might have to take a, a bit more of a look at internally at their academies and think commercially about sort of keeping what they hold um, and trying to work with that rather than sort of expensive transfers that we've seen previously. But as I say, I think really a, a lot depends on what comes next now in, in the mm. coming months. Um, and, you know, we've, we've obviously seen and read a lot about Project Restart. 
um, but but sort of what happens next for Premier League clubs. Just finally, uh, Jason, uh, this is sort of more broad. Um, it strikes me that there may well be um, areas of, of sport and football which are uh, going to become something of a legal minefield uh, in the future when all this plays out. You know, TV deals, for example, you know, are they getting the, the, the product that they, they paid for? Um, are fans getting uh, uh, season tickets, those kind of issues, which might be become a, a, a legal issue? Um, sponsors, uh, those kind of things. And in cases where leagues, for example, have decided, and I think we've seen this in France a little bit, where they've decided to end the season and make decisions about who could, uh, who ends up where and who's getting promoted, who's getting relegated, who's getting European places and what have you. Um, are those areas which could potentially uh, end up mired in the legal system because the decisions that have been made are, are not necessarily reflective of what might have happened over the course of a season. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a, a risk from this of sort of further court proceedings and, and litigation. You know, thinking from from my day to day perspective in, in dispute resolution, I think you know one of the key points to have in mind is that uncertainty tends to breed disputes and litigation. Mm. Um, and where we stand at the moment, um, you're right about contracts. Um, a colleague of mine wrote. Uh, a piece that's on the, the same Linklater's blog about force majeure. So where sponsorship contracts or season tickets, uh, the contracts might um, have issues that mean that, that they fall away or can be amended in some respect where uh, an incident occurs that couldn't have been contemplated. And mm. there's obviously a big question mark uh, contract to contract on whether the pandemic falls into that category. But more generally, you're right that you know, we, we can't say with any certainty what any club might have done in, say, with 10 fixtures remaining um, and, and how that would have played out. Um, you know, you can you can try to take reasonable and sensible bases of uh, points per game and things like that. But but the uncertainty that flows from that and, and the significant value of prize money and sponsorships, the implications of relegation and the like and European qualification, you know, you can see where clubs would have difficulties in accepting that and, and might see that as a reason to uh, to try to bring some form of action. All right. Well, look, it's all ahead of us. Um, and of course, you know, we are sort of speculating a little bit, but it's just one of those things where you think um, you, the, the prize money and all of those uh, issues, uh, you know, European qualification, relegation, the, you know, all of those things which have widespread effects on football clubs, you know, in terms of their playing staff, in terms of their finances, um, may well um, be the subject of, of legal proceedings down the line. But we will wait and see. Uh, we'll leave it there, though. Jason, thank you very much indeed for your expertise. Really appreciate it. And as I said, I'll link to that piece on player contracts and people can pick it up in the show notes. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed to Jason. As I said, you can find the link to his blog about player contracts and, and the implications of FIFA's guidelines, etc., etc., uh, in the show notes on your app, or you can find it on the corresponding post on arsblog.com. So if you just go to the website, click on Arscast at the top, and you'll see today's show, and in there, in the post, you'll find the links that you need. I noticed that after we spoke, David Ornstein has written a piece for The Athletic in which... 
The Premier League want all expiring contracts settled by June 23rd by one of three ways, either a new deal, an extension on identical terms, or no offer whatsoever. But they want these um, situations sorted out before June 23rd. How... How that's going to play, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, how players are going to go for it, how agents are going to go for it, how clubs are going to go for it. We'll uh, we'll all come out in the wash, but uh, you know certainly it is a big issue for football um, and one that not just uh, Premier League clubs but clubs across Europe are going to have to face. Now on the BBC, the news. Arsenal Football Club were today boosted by a cash injection from owners KSE. In these trying times, finances are tight, but the cavalry has arrived from the far side of the Atlantic thanks to Staniel Enos Kroenke. Chairman Sir Chips Keswick said, Stain's just injected me with liquid gold. I'm off my tits. Ivan Gazidis, meanwhile, is to receive an honorary injection of lead. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right. I am delighted to welcome to the Arsecast a comedian, a writer, a podcaster, an actor, and now an audiobook doerer. Adam Buxton. Hello, Adam. Hey, how are you doing, Andrew? I am all right. How are you doing at the moment? I'm doing well. You know, I mean, I'm one of the lucky ones. Mm. And uh, I'm grateful for my good fortune every day. Although, do you get this? Is this? I haven't. I, I've really been very isolated out here. I mm. only have my family out here in Norfolk to commune with. I feel very grateful for that. I'm glad I'm not alone. My mum's all alone down in Reading and... She's feeling it. Mm. And she's lonely. I feel bad for her, and I feel bad for anyone who's in a setup where they don't like the people they're with, or they're lonely on their own, or yeah. anyway. But I haven't seen anyone other than my family for the last seven weeks or something, because we started isolating a little bit ahead of the curve. Right. How how uh, far away is your nearest neighbour, for example? 
Oh, not, I mean, about half a mile or something. Okay, that's quite a long way away, you know, in comparison to mine, which is, you know, five yards either side of me. So I've yeah. seen I've seen people in the neighborhood and, and what have you, and I've seen my dad because I have to go up and, and look after him a little bit, uh, but he's not that far away. It's not sort of Norwich or Norfolk to Reading distance. It's a 10-minute drive. Um, but yeah, no, it is it is strange, isn't it, to be that isolated uh, just all of it a sudden? absolutely in all sorts of ways. And one of those ways is just feeling kind of dangerously out of touch. And then you're reminded of the reality for a lot of people when you turn on the news, of course. Mm. And then it intensifies a feeling of, of kind of guilt and shame that so much of my time is spent, A, quite pleasurably, and B, just doing total bullshit. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, I, I, like this. <laughs> yeah, but it's. I have to keep reminding. The thing is that it was always that way. I would I, even in pre-COVID days. You know, there would yeah. be times when I would just catch myself and rem- have to remind myself, like, God, this is what you do for a living. You just tit about for a living. Meanwhile, other people are doing serious jobs and going through all sorts of terrible things and who knows what. But that that never stops, really, does it? You have to kind of, if you are sort of shamed into just being sensible all the time and mm. completely eliminating the ridiculousness from your life, especially if you are a comedian, then uh, everything's going to kind of grind to a halt. True. I don't know what my point is here, other than... I feel grateful. Okay, we. I mean, we need some frivolity and we need some entertainment as well. That's that's the reality of it. Yeah, and look, I know, I know what you mean. You know, somebody who writes about a football team for a living and podcasts about a football team for a living, you do sometimes realize that there are people doing far more important things. You know, just the the the, the realization that we so badly need people who work in supermarkets. You know, has been yeah. a revelation to lots of people. That's the thing. It's just the the pandemic has just shoved the strange way that society operates and all the kind of compromises and, and the way that and all the inequalities and all sorts of things just right up in your face. You know. Yeah. So, look, I am um, listening at the moment to your audio book called well that's well, very important work it is uh, ramble book musings on childhood friendship family and 80s pop culture and it is the first audiobook i have ever listened to oh really yeah because i find it um i don't know if you're reading fiction uh you know i sort of want to read it in my own voice and in my own time and i'm you know, when i'm going about i'm listening to podcasts but i've got a lot of time to listen to podcasts and i'm sort of not at the end of of the well but i thought before we spoke to this it would be you know good to to listen to the audiobook and it's uh, very entertaining as i mentioned to you in an email earlier there's some imagery involving june whitfield that i didn't really need in my life and will never leave me. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for um, that. Listeners, June was the subject of a wet dream. My first when I was <laughs> no a, young, spoilers. <laughs> a young man. And many of you probably won't even remember who June Whitfield is. Well, Google her. I don't think she's with us anymore. Maybe she is. I, uh, I don't know, actually. I'm just I'm going to check. Do. This is one of the advantages of doing a podcast remotely is that you're at your computer and you can check these things. Mm. Um, but she was in a sitcom called uh, Terry and June about a suburban couple. No, she's no longer with us. Um, she died only at the end of 2018. Okay. 
um, she was when I was dreaming about her in inappropriate <laughs> ways. Already aged about sixty, so <laughs> I don't know what was going on there. Uh, well, look, but I, yeah. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, look, the the, the audio book is 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 excellent uh, so far. I think I'm on chapter nine or ten, uh, and there's still hours left. So uh, it was great value for my Audible credits that I built up over X amount of time that I didn't even realize I had. So that's nice. Um, but tell me a little bit about the the process of of writing the book in the first place, because you know you're a comedian and a writer, and you've written lots of things, TV shows and and scripts and uh, comedy bits, and your your live shows and all that kind of stuff. How did you find the process of writing a book? I found it very bad, and I don't <laughs> recommend it to anyone. It was torture. I mean, I use that term relatively speaking, of course. But within the context of my life, it was mm. certainly pretty grim. But um, you're generous to describe me in all those ways. Yes, I have done all those things that you mentioned. I have written for TV and for my live shows and things like that, but only in very short form generally. You mm. know? Or I've collaborated with someone else. And generally, a lot of those things haven't seen the light of day even. So this was the most substantial thing that I've ever done. And I was asked to write a book. I mean, people approach me to write a book. They have done for a while, I guess. And especially since I've been doing the podcast and since that's become somewhat successful, um, then you get people saying, oh, maybe you should write a book because they kind of do the maths, I think. You know yes. what I mean? Like they say, well, how many listeners? Is it's not really a very artistically motivated process, all due respect to my magnificent publishers. But... Um, I eventually said, yeah, okay. And I eventually said yes, because it was a few years after my dad had died. And I was aware that I was processing a whole load of stuff. <laughs> right. And having a bit of a midlife crisis and thinking about my dad and my weird relationship with him and my my upbringing and uh, lots of things that I'd never really thought about properly and that I probably should have thought about <laughs> that... I, I, I thought, well, maybe I can write about this. And so it is hopefully not too serious. I mean, it's fairly silly, I think, a lot of it. Yes. Um, reflection on my upbringing and the friends I made and becoming friends with Joe Cornish and Louis Theroux when we were at school and things like that, with the, with the kind of intermittent main motif being my relationship with my dad and then him getting ill and... When he was quite old, he was in his 90s, he, he got diagnosed with cancer and then he came to live with me out here and, and my family out in Norfolk because I was kind of thinking, well, this is my last chance to sort of get to know him because we had a weird formal relationship. And um, so we looked after him here for his last few months and I write a bit about that. Um, I don't know if you've been in that kind of position before, but it's... Mm. It's weird on all sorts of levels. Yeah, not quite that, but um, I have yeah I've gone through the process of of losing somebody to cancer. Yeah, it is weird. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean look, it was weird. It was yeah. weird. It's like it's particularly tragic if the person is younger. Mm. So there wasn't that. There wasn't quite that element of tragedy because my dad was already quite old. I mean, it wasn't obviously. No one was pleased about it, but still. <laughs> You know, it was yeah, yeah. kind of it felt it felt like a, a natural process 
as much as possible, you know? Yeah, uh, it is. It does run through the book and it runs through, you know, really nicely. And I think there's a, it's easy maybe to get over, overly sentimental or maybe too serious. And, you know, people who listen to your podcast and people who know your work will be uh, pleased to hear that uh, it's none of those things. And there's the just the requisite amount of silliness in every serious situation, you know, not to take it over the over the top. Um, the, the audiobook side of things... Um, did you enjoy that a bit more? Because I think that obviously uh, ties a little bit more into the work that you do uh, at the moment with the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. Mm. We would, I, did, I didn't plan on doing it all from home. I We were going to record it in a fairly conventional way in a studio in London. But the studio was booked the week that the lockdown was announced. So mm. we realized that... I'd have to do it all from home. And actually, that suited me fine. And the writing of the book, I'd always imagined doing the... the um, I'd always imagined doing the audiobook anyway. Yeah. Uh, I kind of wrote it as an audiobook, is what I'm trying to say. Sure. And I had a guy called David Sedaris on my podcast, an American yes. writer, very funny writer. And one of the things he said to me was that he treats the process of writing a book like uh, the way a stand-up comedian develops new material. So when he goes out on his reading tours, he will include bits that he's working on, pieces that he's developing, and he will develop them in much the same way that a stand-up does. He'll uh, read bits out and then make notes afterwards. The audience liked that line. They didn't like that bit so much. I can lose that. And then he hones his stuff in that way. Sure. And he described that process to me, and I thought that was really an interesting way to go because I was really struggling with how to get the tone of the book and what the hell the book was about. And so I started doing that myself. I started doing live shows where I would read out bits and pieces that I was thinking about to a, a small live audience. Mm. And that made it clear quite quickly what was going to work and what wasn't. And so then I, I, I kind of went from there. So the audio book felt like a very natural progression yeah and of course it gives you um the the chance to to sort of play around and be funny and use sound uh, and stuff like that in in the way that you do and you know sort of bringing us on to podcast do, do you ever stop and marvel at the fact that um you're in an industry or doing a job or or part of your work is something which allows you to constantly do silly voices uh, yeah, I mean, I'm grateful for it. <laughs> I really like it. But then sometimes in insecure moments, I catch myself thinking, actually, not all your silly voices are good. And uh, you've, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I'll hear some stuff back from a few years ago or, or even longer. Yeah. And I'll think, no, you shouldn't have done that silly voice. That wasn't good at all. And it's difficult to know. Like, finding your own voice is a really tricky thing and it was a, a concept that was always bandied around when i was growing up and started hearing about and reading about artists and things mm. finding your voice when you find your voice oh you haven't found your voice yet and i was like what the shit is that was finding your voice and i suppose now i know what it is it's like a place where you're comfortable and you're not and you're not kind of l trying too hard or something mm. and a lot of the stuff i've done over the years and still do every now and again, is definitely trying too hard one way or another, you know? Yeah. Yeah, look, um, I'm, 
I, I think, you know, this podcast started in, in 2006 and I've, you know, people who listen regularly will know that I, I did radio back in my younger days and then didn't do any radio for a while for various reasons. But I always loved it. And when I started in radio, it was pirate radio. So the, there was this freedom to do what you wanted and freedom to do little sketches and, and make silly voices and those kind of things. And and part of the reason I stopped doing radio was beca- because it became very formatted. So you had to say this at this point, you had to play this piece of music at that point. And it, you know, it took a lot of the, the joy out of it for me. Um, it was yeah. probably better radio as a professional thing, but just from a, an enjoyment point of view. And when you when I sort of discovered what podcasts were and this ability that, okay, here, I can have a microphone and I can talk into it and I can do silly voices and make up characters and nobody is going to tell me not to. It was sort of like a, a revelation, this sort of blank audio blank slate that you have is, is marvelous. Yeah, no, I really, I, I do love it. And I do love silly voices, definitely. I've always gravitated towards anything silly voice based in comedy you know monty python yeah the the old women the old women voices they used to do on there particularly <laughs> terry jones's old woman voice yeah and uh and then the young ones the kind of the way that rick mail would deliver his lines and all that was just about the tone and the texture of the voice and then i love listening to atletico mints yeah. uh, like bob mortimer <laughs> You know, he's, I don't know, I'd love to, he's just relaxed with himself, I guess. He's hes spent years just knowing exactly where to go hunting for st- stupid voices and he always finds exactly the right one. And uh, yeah, well, I, I love all that stuff. And I was writing in the book as well a little bit about, uh, I mentioned Shut Up Your Face. Do you remember that song? Yes, I do. Yeah. What's the matter, you... Hey, hey, God, and no respect. Hey, it was by a guy called Joe Dolce, Australian, uh, Italian comedian. And it was a big hit in the early 80s. And generally it was regarded as, well, it was a novelty song, comedy song. Yeah. And famously it kept uh, Vienna off the top spot. And it was all about, um, the. it was written from, it was inspired by his grandma, things that his Italian grandma used to say to him when he was a boy. And uh, I always thought it was really funny. And, and always, whenever I saw it mentioned, it was like, oh, God, shut up your face. Even at the time, I remember crowding around Top of the Pops and watching Top of the Pops and everyone going, oh, no, shut up your face is number one again. Oh, it's so <laughs> terrible. I was thinking, I don't think it's terrible. I think it's, it's great. great. Yeah. Oh, what's the matter, you? Hey, I mean, you know, I suppose he's OK doing it because he's part Italian. Yeah, he can get away the, with uh, it, yeah. He can get away with it. But this is the other thing is that obviously nowadays people are, uh, are rightfully thinking much harder and being much more sensitive about the kind of things they find funny or, or, or they think are funny or I don't know what. But uh, it is tricky. Sometimes I find it's really difficult with accents because I I just think – uh, I just think you should be able to do whatever accent you want, as long as it's clear that you are not motivated by a, a desire to humiliate someone, or or it, or it's kind of offensive and dangerously ignorant. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, no, I, I, yeah, I know. Like it's. Uh... You could do a, the various stripes of an English accent, but if you take it to a different country, you could be accused of being uh, insensitive that way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's obvious examples of, of people and nationalities who 
are so regularly discriminated against and patronized yeah. that if you're going to start doing that accent, then it comes with a load of problematic baggage,、mm-hmm. and you've got to be you've got to be very careful. And but、uh, I don't know. I don't. I, I think. I think.、Um, It's always worth trying to find the right way of doing it because it is funny. <laughs> But, yeah, I, do, I mean, just it's just like funny rubbish accents make me laugh. You know what I mean? Like、yeah. people just doing weird, wrong-headed, mangled accents. I like a sort of mangled European accent and things like that. The the kind of、um, like the Bruno sort of accent from I suppose、Sasha、so. Yeah, Baron Cohen that one. Although his he's quite specific with his his accents are fairly accurate, aren't they? Like I, he's for. Bruno, yeah, no, I suppose you're right. They're 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 very broad, and but they're I suppose there are people that find those offensive. I don't know. I, I guess, yeah, maybe. I, I guess it, a lot depends on the context. It would be fair to say of what you're saying and how you're saying it. So,、uh, I, yeah, I think so. Yeah, we we'll have to、uh, ask the people of Kazakhstan whether Borat was.、Um, Insensitive for them, but you know. I mean, I think I think it,、uh, the short answer is yes. Right. <laughs> I'm I'm fairly sure that for a while the people of Kazakhstan did not appreciate Borat at all, and found it offensive. I mean, this is a generalization, but、mm. that, that was the understanding that I had. Now, I think then it led to such a massive rise in tourism that film for did it.、Uh, Kazakhstan, yeah. Wow. That now I think they're a bit more、uh, appreciative. <laughs>、mm. <laughs> I might be wrong about that. Okay. Well, we'll ask them later.、Um, the podcast itself is is、uh, going strong, and it's back with some really great episodes, and it's、uh, it's as fantastic as always. But I think one of the last times we were talking, we we were discussing Mark Maron, as we're both big fans of him and his show, and. I don't know whether you were going to interview him or it was still something that you you wanted to do and you did it.、Um, I, I was just curious how how you found that experience、uh, of interviewing, I guess, a, a sort of a podcast hero, if you like. Yes,、uh, it was good. I was really nervous actually because yeah,、um, I was going to ask. Yeah, I, f- I, I found him sort of intimidating, and when I listened to his podcast, WTF. You know, it's a strange relationship you have, or I have, as a listener, because there are times that I think, "Boy, you're the kind of person I really would not get on with."、Mm. And、um, <laughs> even though I think he is a brilliant interviewer, and he, I love listening to his conversations with people. I think he he's really got a, a feel for how to get interesting stuff out of people, and I admire that. But、um, but yeah, sometimes I just think, "Oh, mate, what are you on about?"、Um, And so I was nervous that he was gonna just take one look at me and go, "Who's this guy?"、Mm. And、um, I mean, I think he sort of did that, but then he、um, interviewed Louis Theroux, and I'm friends with Louis, and so Louis gave me a shout, and then after that he returned my email,、um, and I was able to meet up with him in Los Angeles in 2017, I think it was. Yeah. And it was good. We went and we met not in his garage, but、uh, in this office where he writes, and he's got all his like. Whenever someone sends him a record or a book or something, he's got it all stashed in this little office. So he's just surrounded by freebies. And he went and got him. He got his cup of kombucha, and then <laughs> up we went and and we chatted. But 
Uh, yeah, no, he was really nice, actually. He was good. I, I felt as if I didn't really particularly scratch the surface. Uh, and I was too gutless to, you know, kind of duel with him a little bit. I would have liked to have just, um, uh, I don't know, teased him a little bit or something, but mm. I just didn't have the gut. No, it is. It's, it's, uh, yeah, you're trying to walk that line, aren't you, between sort of being respectful for them and what they're doing and the time that they're giving you and also wanting to to ask maybe some some difficult questions. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. Gonna, uh, yeah. I was going to ask you like if you were if you do get nervous about um doing podcasts or or even the process of asking people to do podcasts because I, I had an anxiety dream about this the other night where just before we were supposed to do it in the studio um that i have i decided to move everything around for some reason move my desk to a different part of the room and then i was trying to plug my microphone in and i was trying to is this in your dream or in is, real life this is in my dream and um I was trying to plug a, or do, uh, attach a camera to a tripod, but it was full of maggots, and you were sitting there kind of going, look at this cunt. Look at fucking Jesus. So I had this like massive anxiety dream about doing this. So oh, I, really? Yeah, no, genuinely. I'm like, oh, I, I, I don't feel... That's made my feel, day. Good. <laughs> I don't feel particularly nervous now, but, you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, you ask somebody, and you're like, I really want this to be good, and for not to, after seven minutes, minutes ago like uh well that was nice thank you and, andrew you're much more of a professional than i'll ever be you don't need to oh, thank you <laughs> be anxious but um no i i know exactly where you're coming from and it is it is a weird thing because you sort of think especially if you're a fan of someone mm. you know you want to you want to make a good impression and you don't want to be in that position where they just clearly think you're such a tit yeah um yeah. i don't know they, they, there's different types of relationships you have with people you admire though do you know what i mean like sure. uh for example david bowie was an obvious example of someone who not only did i admire i i loved his music i thought he was really great but i also liked him mm. despite all sorts of you know um uh, despite the fact that I didn't know him, obviously, and there were certain aspects of his personality and his character which maybe were unsavory, or I don't know what, you know. Sure. But um, but I liked him, basically, and I thought we'd probably get on. And uh, so he was, a, he was in that category of people I would like to know as a friend. Brian Eno, also in that category. And I did interview him... And I was very nervous about that because I didn't want him to dislike me. If he, if Brian Eno had clearly thought that I was awful, that would have put a kink in my day because I listened to yeah. his stuff a lot. And one way or another, he's been part of the fabric of my cultural life since I was about 11 or something. So that would be a drag. I, I, I would, it would really shut down my appreciation of him. However, there's other people I love. Van Morrison, for example. Mm who I have no interest in getting to know as a person whatsoever. And I'm pretty sure he would have no interest in getting to know me. <laughs> I don't think that would be a personal thing, Adam. I think that just sort of applies across the human race when it comes well, to Well, exactly. Yeah. I, he's a different type of person. He's someone who, whose personality, he, you, like you can separate him and the art mm. easily and completely. And I'm not interested really. I've, I, like I very seldom have I actually sort of Googled Van Morrison interviews on on YouTube and things like that. Yeah, because I don't really care. His music is 
all is the most important thing to me and that's all I care about and I listen to it a lot and I really care about it I love it I think he's amazing but uh, yeah I don't I don't mind about him you know mm. so if I was meeting I mean I say that if I ever met him I'd probably be nervous but yeah sure but it's it's the 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 amount to which it would cost you afterwards if it went badly or not I think yeah yeah um, I mean, speaking of one that went really well, and I don't know if it was beyond what you were expecting with it, but the Billy Connolly interview, um, whether it was late last year, I think, or earlier this year, I've lost all track of time, and I don't know I rec- how long it's been. It, um, recorded it in June, I think, last year, 2019. Can and I it ask went you, out towards the end. Yeah. How come you do interviews with people and then sit on them for 11 months or a year and a half and stuff? Well, it's not good, but it is it is a it's a factor of the fact that I do most of it on my own and I'm just not sufficiently well organized. So I don't plan it out. I don't plan out a season, as it were, and go, right, here's who's going to go there. And but then when when it comes to when it comes time to put them out, you do have to do a little bit of DJing, as it were. You kind of think, Mm. well, look, we've we've had three very similar guests on in a row there we need someone slightly different there we can't just have another kind of bloke comedian guy there you know because the vast majority of people that i end up speaking to or that i have access to or that i know are people like me you know it's other kind of middle class straight white blokes usually comedians (laughs) um so i do you know i do try and, and make it slightly more varied but but what happens a lot of the time is that the uh you know the the more similar types of guests end up piling up in the you know I'll record a whole load if I get access mm. to someone or if someone's around I'll say yeah great I'll record it but then it's like oh I don't know exactly when it's going to go out though because we've got so many other similar types of episodes is this sure. making sense no it does it does make sense that's a good explanation for for that and then the other thing that happens is very often I'll come out of the interview and I'll think oh that wasn't very good and um, for whatever reason, a lot of the time I'm just in a weird mood and I don't do a good job. And many episodes that I've recorded haven't gone out um, because wow. I just think, well, they didn't really, it just didn't really click. Um, and so I'd rather not put them out because I don't think it does anyone, like doesn't do me any favours, doesn't do the person I'm talking to any favours, you know. Mm. Um, and so sometimes, but, but, but sometimes I misjudge it. Like I came out of talking to Johnny Marr and I thought, uh, we didn't click really. It didn't happen. Um, or I annoyed him a little bit or I don't know. I just didn't yeah. feel completely happy about it. And so I left it and didn't play it back for a while because it kind of made me sad that I buggered up that opportunity. But then I, li- I, then I listened to it back a few months later or six months later or whatever. And I was like, oh, no, it's fine. It's good. He yeah. was great. Um, and so it'll go like that. I mean, it's really stupid <laughs> and I'm, I'm not happy about it. And I, and I, I, these days I do try and say to people when I record with them, listen, I'm not going to guarantee that this goes out and I can't tell you when mm. it'll go out if it does. But in the past, like some of the earlier ones that I recorded, I didn't really say that. And I still feel bad that those people were like, oh, okay. They're still you waiting. Just- yeah, you just didn't put it out. They're checking their Fuck podcast feed you. every week. Is it? Is it my turn this week? Is it? No. Oh God, it's 
John Ronson. Oh, yeah, because again. it's it, it's a smack in the tits, really, isn't it? Like I had that when I I did a podcast called The Nerdist out in Los Angeles. Oh yeah, yeah, I know that one. Yeah, it doesn't. I think it's running under a different name now. But um, that was a big podcast, and I managed to wangle myself on there with the help of Edgar Wright. Actually, he he had been on there before, yeah. and he gave he gave me a reference. So I was quite excited. I was like, "Ooh, big leagues! Here we go, the Nerdist." Recorded with them, and it was okay, but it wasn't. I didn't feel like it was probably one of their best ones, and I got a slight feeling from the host that he had no clue who I was or right. any interest in what I was doing, but he was kind of doing it as a favour to Edgar. I don't know if that's true, but um, that's how I felt. And then it didn't go out for ages. And I just thought, oh, fucking hell, that's how it works, is it? Um, and I felt angry and humiliated. So I know what it's like to be on the other side of it. And then eventually it did go out, but that's just the thing. It's like, oh, right, okay. I, th- I I just assumed that everyone records and then puts it out the same week kind of thing. But no, I don't think so. Yeah, people bank them, I guess, and, and keep them for when, sometimes when they need them. Yeah, I've had to do that once or twice with the other podcast I did. And you just, yeah, it, it, it wasn't good enough for me and it wasn't good enough for them either, I think, um, just to put it out for the sake of, of putting it out. But just sort of briefly going back to Billy Connolly. Oh, uh, yeah. Amazing. I mean, uh, what a... I don't know if it was... Well, look, I'm going to give you credit for the interview because you, you sort of give him uh, this freedom to express himself in the way that he does. But I just think that the, the the personality, the force of personality that he has is just so infectious. It was amazing. I listened to it two or three times and I never do that with podcasts. Oh, wow. That's a nice thing to say. Well, yeah, cheers. And obviously, <clears throat> you know, he's one of those people like Kathy Burks brings to mind, mm. where you really, you don't have to do too much work. You just have to ensure that they're happy enough that they can just talk about whatever they want and you just record. And then the work, from my point of view thereafter, is chopping it down and, and getting the best bits out of it for the edit. And so that's what we did with Billy. And obviously there was loads of stuff with him and he was just happy to talk. And also... I was worried. I was nervous for a couple of reasons. I didn't know how his illness, his Parkinson's, Mm. was going to affect him. I think some days it affects him worse than others. So I didn't know how he was going to be feeling physically, whether he was going to get very tired or what. And also someone that I work with uh, had also worked with him. And the night before I'd said, like, have you got any tips? I'm seeing Billy tomorrow. And uh, she wrote me back this long email, much longer than I was expecting with like, okay, don't say this, don't say that. He doesn't like this. He doesn't like that. Uh, And whatever you do, don't wear shorts, she said. (laughs) And she said, uh, I was working on a show with him and one of the camera people had shorts and Billy just didn't like the shorts. He thought it was pathetic for a grown man to be wearing shorts. And he said, make sure that guy never wears shorts again and Mm. you know he he kind of came back and he apologized and said sorry i was in a bit of a bad mood with the shorts thing anyway by the end of reading this email i'm thinking maybe i shouldn't go and meet billy connolly (laughs) because it's the middle of the summer the day i talked to him turned out to be the hottest day of the year maybe the hottest day for 10 years or something Mm. i like wearing shorts i'm sorry if people think it's 
distasteful to see a 50-year-old short hobbit man wearing shorts, but that's my right. And I don't <laughs> I just didn't want to go and hang out with someone who was going to be judging me for wearing shorts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even Billy Connolly. So I got I I got in this state about it and I emailed my producer and I said, "Is it too late to get out of the Billy Connolly thing?" You oh know? my god. Yeah, because I the, the thing is that I I didn't grow up like a super fan. So it wasn't for me it wasn't like meeting Bowie or something like yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It was like, "Okay, I appreciate he's this giant of comedy." And I had spent two weeks immersing myself, you know, and I was obviously aware of him in a fairly superficial way. And But I, in the two weeks running up to it, I'd really immersed myself in his stuff and just thought, oh, yeah, okay, he is amazing. Yeah. And uh, But I didn't have such a profound attachment to him that I felt like it was going to be worth it just to turn up and have him be pissed off because i was wearing shorts yeah anyway i turn up i turned up early at this restaurant in london where we were supposed to be meeting he was there with his publicist because he had this book coming out with all these um uh, some of his routines over the years written out and uh he was there when i turned up i turned up early so that thinking okay well i'll i'll change out of my shorts (laughs) I brought because you know I'd, I'd put my bike on the train from Norfolk and then I cycled into town, so I was wearing my shorts and I thought I'll get there early. I had a pair of slacks with me that I ironed, and uh, so I thought I don't want Billy to be pissed off. I'm going to iron my slacks. Sure, I'll change into my slacks, comb my hair, you know, I'll fucking do anything to make sure I don't incur the wrath of Connolly. And then, uh, of course, he was there already when I got there. And so I got all flustered and I just blurted out like, oh, I got here early because I was going to change out of my shorts. I heard you don't like shorts. And he just laughed really loudly. He said, who the fuck told you that? <laughs> and I don't know. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not uh, casting doubt over the account of my friend. Mm. I imagine he probably did have a little hang up about shorts one day when they were filming and he was tired and pissed off and you know you get grouchy on set sure but um but anyway he was just it it sort of broke the ice and he said no don't be ridiculous and he was immediately just so cool and nice and luckily i also i bought him i i went and i found out that he really likes this certain type of fudge and i bought him some fudge and some tea that he likes and things like that all right so it was good and uh it it was one of those things where we could have talked for hours and all of it would have been usable really Mm. Mm. uh he 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 was just great Mm. it was yeah brilliant episode uh it's episode 114 of the adam buxton podcast for people who who might want to check it out uh who aren't already subscribed um we uh, we're going to talk a little bit about TV and and films and stuff like that that you might have been watching, but I'm conscious I've taken up quite a bit of your time already, more than I promised. But m- maybe a, a, no, I'm fine. I'm fine, Andrew. If you want to if you want to chat, I like it's nice to yeah. talk to to someone other other than my <laughs> my wife. No disrespect to my wife. No, she's, great to, she's great to talk to. Uh, of course. <laughs> um, all right. Well, look, uh, people have had lots of time to, to sit and watch things um, over the course of this lockdown. So what, what have you been um, gorging on, binging on, Netflixing on um, and everything else? Well, 
Um, I recently we've been watching Ordinary People. Is it called Ordinary People? No, Normal People. Oh, the Sally Rooney thing. Yeah, yeah. I haven't. Um, I haven't seen that yet. Have you not had the sexy, sexy pleasure? No, I haven't. But I, I, I we, we have a, <laughs> we have a uh, a radio show here on RTE Radio One. Goes out every day. It's called Live Line, presented by a man called Joe Duffy, and it's a sort of phone-in show, and people ring in with all kinds of things, and you know the usual sort of um, think about elderly Irish people ringing in to complain about things, anything you can mm-hmm. think of, they'll ring in to complain about it. And after the first episode of Normal People. People went out. There was a, a, the first phone call of the day was a, an, a, an elderly, well, a, I'd say a lady in her 60s or 70s calling in to talk about normal people and what she saw on the television. And she said, uh, you know, she was outraged somewhat because she said, I, I, this is the kind of thing you would see in a pornographic movie. And Joe Duffy <laughs> said, and, 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 and what exactly would you see? In a pornographic movie. And she went, yeah. well, I don't know what you would see in a pornographic movie, but that, I, I, I imagine that's what you would see in a pornographic movie. So it, it like, it took off from there. And I think it, it's probably, my suspicion is it's one of the greatest pieces of marketing um, placement of all time that they've created this outrage about it here because everybody was talking about it and therefore everybody's going to look at it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've got no sense of uh, what people... I'm not even on social media these days, so I don't really know what the buzz about it is. Mm. But I know that we've been watching it with our 17-year-old son, and uh, it's been awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, when you said that, my heart dropped a little bit for you, because the, the idea of watching yeah. a sex scene with your parents is just the worst <laughs> Well, actually, the thing is that my wife finds it more awkward than I do. So, if you, if you, for people who haven't seen this show, it's it's a adaptation of a novel by Sally Rooney. You said yes, and it's about a a bloke, a young bloke who goes out with this kind of weird, slightly unpopular girl at school, and then it traces their relationship uh, through leaving school and going to uh, Trinity College. And uh, thereafter, and it's kind of all their um, makeups and breakups and infidelities and the drama of being in love. You know? mm. But it is interspersed with frequent sex and quite long, <laughs> long sex scenes as well. And they're 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 good. I know. You see, the thing is, I think that lady calling into the talk show was probably wrong to the extent that. Um, I believe that some pornography features fairly, you know, it's uh, sort of graphic, intimate stuff, but it's not particularly tender. This is my understanding, having right. never seen any. Um, I'll take your word for but, it. Yeah, but that's my understanding. And on normal people, it is very tender and it is like a proper concerted effort to actually do love scenes that are somewhat realistic whilst also being kind of sexy, I Mm. suppose, because they're attractive, both of them. Also, they make a point of showing you the man's bits and pieces. So it's not one of those situations where it's only the woman that has to get undressed and humiliate herself in that way. That's good. There's equality now in, in sex scenes. That's good. A little bit, a little bit. Although, she, I mean, his willy time is definitely much lower than her fanny time. 
um, screen, <laughs> right. screen-wise. Right. So it's not total equality by okay. any stretch. But it, it's but a it step is, forward. It's a step forward, and it's great to see the guy's cock. Um, <laughs> it's, wonderful, it's a wonderful piece of equipment that he's got, and they're both very attractive, no Congratulations doubt. Congratulations to him. Hmm. Yeah. But the, we're, we're now at the stage with the show, and I'm about eight, eight episodes in or something, where it is so frequent and relentless the the shagging that it's like oh mate come on mm. just zip it up and it's like oh there are those nipples again hey how you doing it's been a while since we've seen you two yeah okay right and the the fun has gone out of it somewhat um which is a shame because it is a really well acted brilliantly directed um and well written thing and they're very very good all the all the main performers but mate, I don't know if I'm just getting too old or something. Yeah, uh, the sh- the shagging's wearing me down. <laughs> it is um, Lenny Abrahamson, isn't it? Who's directing? Am I right? He's he directed the first few. Yeah, right. yeah, and it's yeah. really well done. Uh, I, I would definitely recommend it. But uh, yeah, we've we've bust through the awkward point with our son now, and it's like we're all just going, "Oh God, here, here we, we go, go again. again, here we go again." <laughs> But it is good. Uh, okay. The other thing we watched was Homeland. Did you see the most recent series of Homeland? And I couldn't believe it was still going because I watched the first two or three seasons of that and then sort of it fell by the wayside and I just figured it was not still going. Like There was no way the conceit of that show could continue for that length of time because of what it was supposed to be about in the first place. It was like, was he, wasn't he, this sort of double agent thing, right? Um, yeah. But, I, you know, I was surprised last week to find out it was still going. So, no, I haven't seen that, unfortunately. I think it was season eight that concluded last Sunday as we speak. Right. And... I I know that there are many people who had that exact same experience that you did that just thought, what? (laughs) (laughs) Eight series and it's willy or won't No, it it changed. Every every season was slightly different, had a different focus. And originally it was, um, uh, what's he called? The actor who's in Billions. Damien Lewis. uh, There you go. Nice. Uh, originally, it was Damien Lewis, American soldier who goes out and gets uh, possibly converted, radicalized uh, as a uh, member of the Taliban or something like that, and then comes mm. back. And we don't know if he's been radicalized or not. And anyway, so that was all resolved a long time ago. But season eight, I don't know what they were smoking, but it was just great. It was like sort of turbo. You know they're they're using all the all the hack, most hackneyed cliffhanger type tricks and sure. uh, narrative twists and turns, but all of them are landing really really well, and everyone everything is just firing on all cylinders. And so usually with those kinds of shows, you get you get a couple of good episodes, and then you get an episode where you go, "Oh, piss off!" Yeah, and yeah. Y- you know you're almost thinking, "Maybe I'm not going to watch this anymore." Like Lost springs to mind from back in the day. Sure. Um, but this was just like I don't think it put a foot wrong. Like the, okay. it, I would really recommend you could go back. I don't think you need to have seen the other, the other shows, the other series. Okay, my son again watched that with us. He'd never seen it before, and he was right into it. It was great. Okay, uh, and it, it had a good ending, and because it was the hot, they wrapped up the whole thing. Ah, okay, and it was, a, and it was it good. Was a, the ending was good. Yeah, it was great. It was oh, satisfying, right. and uh, that doesn't happen oh, often enough, does it? 
No, it really doesn't. Mm. I mean, you think like how many of those long running shows are able to satisfyingly conclude? Very few, that whether they're true. sitcoms or, or dramas or whatever. So mm. that was brilliant. Uh, we watched, we watched, am I, stop me when I'm no, no, when you're c- continue, so bored and you want to kill yourself. No, it's great. Did you watch Devs? No, I, that's on my list. Devs Alex is Garland's list. show. Yeah, I've seen so people Alex, talking about that. Alec Garland, who did Ex Machina. Mm. Did you ever see that film? Yes. I thought that was good, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I enjoyed that. That was with... Um, uh, that's the one yes. with the... Yeah, that guy. The, that guy. <laughs> that guy, your man. It's the guy with Poe from uh, Star Wars and um, one of the naughty men from Star Wars who was in... Oh, I'm, go- I'm so old. What's his name? Uh, ginger fellow Donald Gleason. Donald Gleason. There you go. There you go. He's like a fellow Irishman. I should know that. Yeah, he's very good. Yeah. Anyway, so so that was good. Ex Machina, and so that's who you're dealing with. Alex Garland directing and writing, and it is about a devs is about this San Francisco tech billionaire who assembles a team of sort of genius software developers to create a quantum supercomputer. That challenges our conception of reality. Okay, just and, what we need. Yeah. And so it's sort of like if you were 17 and always stoned, you would think it was the greatest thing you had ever seen in your life. <laughs> and actually, it's also pretty good if you're 50 and extremely stoned or not extremely stoned. But it is like it is sort of screwing around with what's real, what's not real, what is... You know, what does it mean to be alive and uh, oh, the nature of existence and all sorts of stuff. And it's beautifully shot. And I mean, it is, I would have to say, occasionally massively pretentious, but sort of in a way that is completely appropriate for the material. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. When you're dealing with San Francisco tech billionaires, chances are some of them are, there's an air of pretension to what they're doing and their characters. Yeah, but yeah. it's good. it's it's pretty good fun. So I recommend that. Okay. But here is my golden nugget, my secret torpedo, which you will have to deal with in a cautious manner. Okay. It's and it's called Counterpart. Yes. Have you ever heard of Counterpart? Yes, 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 yes. I've watched it. I've watched oh, it. Oh, mate. I haven't talked to anyone who's seen it. It's brilliant. You, so, yeah, so good. When did you watch it? When it went out? Um, no, uh, in the last few weeks we just finished it uh, a couple of weeks ago and right loved it and loved your man uh jk simmons yeah um the 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 can we tell people we can sort of tell people what it's about that there's yeah so the premise is it's sort of it's a it's kind of like a cold war espionage thriller uh, but the espionage is taking place between this world our world mm-hmm. and another duplicate world that has been accidentally created back in the 70s. Yeah. And we sort of find out how a bit further on. But uh, I don't think this is... Well, well there's, it's, not a, it's not a total spoiler because all these things are established very early on. Yeah. But basically, they're, they're, you know, the two identical worlds start diverging and having their own... going on their own historical timeline... But in in the other world, there is a duplicate of everyone who is in this world, mm. and the, and so you refer to them. So somewhere there's a um, uh, Adam Buxton who and and he looks exactly like me, and he has the same kind of personality, and he is my other. Yes, but 
but my other's life has probably taken a different turn to mine for all sorts of incredibly tiny, trivial reasons, you know. Mm. And then there is this, there is this um, motif, which is that our world, um, well, no, it, the other world, a lot of the population has been wiped out by this flu-like pandemic. So this is a show that came out, I think it premiered in 2017 maybe mm. and the and the last series aired in 2018 i think or maybe early last year yeah there's only two seasons so uh, yeah it's it's not a huge commitment no but how weird and that's why i say maybe treat it with caution if you feel overwhelmed and anxious about the, the current situation maybe it's not the best thing to watch yeah but you are watching something that is dealing with the with this pandemic with this flu-like pandemic that is much more lethal than coronaviruses um, here, but um, but you know the 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 two worlds have Collide. this rivalry and yeah. suspicion of each other because they don't know if the pandemic has been sort of uh, started deliberately in order to wipe out the duplicate world. Mm. And so, so it's hard to describe, but it's really brilliantly done. And the acting is so good. Like, so J.K. Simmons, who you mentioned, who was the guy in Whiplash, um, and he's done loads of films, but he's always really, really good. So he plays two versions of himself with very different personalities. And uh, God, he's good, isn't he? Like, he, he, as, soon as, he, as soon as he shows up, even though they look identical, you just know from his expression, like, which version yeah, of it's Howard... Amazing. It is. Yeah, it's amazing. Whether it's to do with his eyes or the way he carries himself or is it the, 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 the sh shape of his shoulders or something, you just know which one it is, even though they could be dressed exactly the same. It's, yeah. it's remarkable. I don't know and quite it's not how as simple. It. It's not as simple as like one of them always frowns and the other one's always yeah. grinning. But, well, uh, one's got a twiddly moustache going... Wah, yeah. ah, ah, ah. <laughs> That's right. One's got, one's got slave written on his cheek. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's so, it's so good and, like, consistently good. Yeah. And especially with, with a premise that is that elaborate and sort of science fiction-y, you would think that it, it would tie itself up in knots and just go stupid quite quickly but it i don't think it does really no it's it's really good really enjoyable um and the you know the other performances around him are, are very good as well we were trying to figure out who the the guy was who's in the um who's in the, the ministry or whatever it is and we realized yeah. he was he was the brother from game of thrones who got there killed go. with the the vat of oil or gold over his head was that guy yes yeah. Yes. He specialises in kind of spineless weasels. Doesn't yes. It? He's, yeah. He's very good at that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I know, but the, the the thing about the show is that it. The other reason I I recommend it with some caution, and there's, I, we can't be specific because it would be a spoiler, is that it concluded, I think, prematurely because they were planning the the arc of the whole series. I've since found out was supposed to be longer. Mm. And they were expecting to get a third series, but then they didn't because the ratings were disappointing for whatever reason. Ah. Um, and so the conclusion of the two series is pretty great. Like it's almost perfect. But then there's this one thing that's left hanging and you're like, ah, oh, I wish that wasn't hanging. Did you find that? I think so. And I'll ask you afterwards. 
because we don't want to give a, a spoiler away on this. Um, but e- even but so, it, it is satisfying uh, as, yeah, a, yeah. as a two-season arc. It, I don't think really that works. should put you off um, checking it out because it is really... Mm. It's one of the best things I've seen for ages. Have you been watching What We Do in the Shadows? Oh, the new one. Mm. Actually, I haven't. I forgot that was on. Um, and I talked to Tash Dimitriou, who is in it, just the other week on my she podcast. Is, I, uh, there's a bit in the first series where there's a scene where they go out with the old vampire or whatever and they, dr- they uh, drink the blood of somebody who was on drugs and then they're on drugs. And there's this oh, yeah. scene where she's trying to say, we drank the drug blood. But um, <laughs> if, if you have ever seen anybody who um, might have taken a little bit too much ecstasy, I don't know if yeah. you've ever come across that in your life, but it was a very good impression of that. Uh, and it remains probably the funniest thing I've seen on TV in years. I just can't, she cracks me up. Oh man, she's very funny. Yeah, it's uh, it's oh, well worth watching. Yeah, yeah and, and the new series is uh, good, is it? It is good. It is good. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's it's uh, on top of the first series. We thought there were two, but it turned out we watched the first series twice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't say much for for my memory. And actually, I uh, I was going to mention Counterpart if you hadn't. And the other one, I people have know I'm I'm watching Better Call Saul for the first time. Oh, yeah. But I'm like in season two, and Colin Robinson, who's in What yeah. We Do in the Shadows, who's the energy vampire, I was looking at that going, oh, they just looked at this and went, he's perfect for that, yeah. <laughs> for, for his role in Better Call Saul. It's just like, he's unbelievable. Like, there could not be a better actor for that particular role. That's right. Yeah, he's great. Oh, that is, it, it is a great show, isn't it, Better mm. Call Saul? And the, and the thing with that one... I would say is that it gets better and better and better in a way that I don't know, like my, my memories of watching Breaking Bad from start to finish are, are kind of conflicted somewhat. I, I didn't really have a good time watching Breaking Bad. Maybe I was just a, in a bad place in my life or something, but I just found it so bleak and depressing and, mm. and, like I didn't really like any single character in it. Whereas in Better Call Saul, um, she is brilliant. What's uh, what's the name of her character? Has gone out of my head now. Um, Kim. Kim. Kim yeah. Wexler. She's fantastic. And then you've got uh, Saul himself, who's great. And then you've got uh, oh man, I'm so bad with names. Who's the old guy who was in Breaking Bad? Um. Oh, Mike. Mike Ermintrout. Mike, Mike Ermintrout. Yeah, he's great. He's great, and then and he gets like quite a lot of major storylines. He gets more and more prominent mm. as the series goes on. Okay. Well, um. Yeah. Just sort of four or five episodes into season two. So, uh, so enjoying that. And then we were we watched a bit of Gangs of London. Have you watched some of that? No, I haven't seen that. Right. How was that? violent extremely extremely violent um mm-hmm. but i think you have to suspend a great deal of your um disbelief it requires some shelving of your brain to one side or the other and just sort of if you're into gratuitous sort of violence it'll work for you but i'm not quite sure i'm i'm quite with it but, but were you uh, were you a massive uh, peaky blinders guy i watched the yeah i think i watched three or four I watched three or four uh, of Peaky Blinders and enjoyed... Three or four episodes no, or series. No, se- seasons, seasons. Seasons. Series. Yeah, yeah. I watched it. I didn't see the last one. 
because I don't know, I don't quite know why. Sometimes you just kind of get fed up or you find it hard to go back to characters and, and things like that, no? Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, that's why I say with, with you know, when you get a good show that isn't, yeah, you can you can be quite enjoying something and stick with it for a while and then just goes out of your life and then you, you, you forget to check if there's a new season and then you see that there is and you're like, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> I'll live without that. Look, Adam, yeah. um, thank you for uh, your time. I, I really appreciate it. What do you, I mean, what are your plans for the next little while? How has this affected you from a, a work point of view? Because I know the book itself, the physical book, was supposed to come out um, yeah. around now, wasn't it? And, of course, I know lots of people um, who were due to have books published and, and they haven't been or the book tours have been uh, destroyed yeah. or, or what have you. So are you just sort of sitting and waiting to see what happens? Sort of, although, I mean, they were talking about rescheduling all the book tour dates for later in the year. I've got a feeling that's not going to happen. Mm. Um, I think it's going to be tricky for theatres and that they are going to be some of the last places that open when the lockdown exit happens. I think it's probably more realistic to think about early next year. So it's weird. I mean, there are months stretching ahead of me. I'm not looking forward to this next stage, which is going to be uh, kind of neither one thing nor the other with the children allowed out again and being we have to drive them around again and stuff. and yet we can't really visit friends who are more than 20 kilometers away or things like that, you know. So that's not much good to us. But, um, no, look, I can't complain. Um, I like being at home and I love being with my family and Rosie. So oh, yeah. I'm sort of making the most of it, really. Rosie, of course, uh, your, your furry friend who features on yep. the podcast regularly. That's right. Uh, she's in good With form. Poodle Cross. She is great. She's enjoying the lockdown. She gets a lot more walks than she would normally do because we are so isolated. Yeah. We can, you know, go out and walk around the fields and not see anyone. So yeah. It's great. We, we've got two German shepherds who can't go to where they normally go, which is up the mountains. So they're right. a bit tired of street walking. But, you know, what can you do? So the audiobook is available through Audible? It's available through all Audible. Oh. I can't speak. It's, you know, yeah, Audible, Apple Books, you know, all the all the usual places. All the I usual think. places. Okay. Yes. Well, look, I will uh, find some links and I will add them to the to the notes on this and uh, hopefully people will uh, will enjoy it if they download it. Uh, Adam, uh, thanks so many. I really do appreciate it and I'm glad you weren't sitting there looking at me while I got my camera fucked up calling me a cunt. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Your camera covered in maggots. I like My that detail. camera, yeah. <laughs> it's nice to talk to you, Andrew. Take care, man. You too. Thank you very much indeed to Adam Buxton. And that, just to be clear, is the Adam Buxton, who is a comedian, a writer, an author, a podcaster, an audio book doer, and not the Adam Buxton that plays for Northampton Town. It's true. There's an Adam Buxton that plays for Northampton Town. I know how this feels. You know, as somebody who's got a, a name doppelganger playing professional football, there was Andrew Mangan, as many of you know, played for Fleetwood Town and Wickham Wanderers, I think. Who did he play for? Andrew Mangan, footballer. Andrew Francis Mangan, to give him his uh, his full name, played for Blackpool, uh, Accrington Stanley, Berry, Forest Green Rovers, Wrexham, Fleetwood Town, Forest Green Rovers again. Luton Town, Shrewsbury Town, Tranmere Rovers, Shrewsbury Town again. Wow, Tranmere Rovers again? 
Oh, and he ended up back at Accrington Stanley again. I mean, this dude, he kind of goes away and comes back. He, he's a boomerang footballer, is the Andrew Mangan, uh, the footballer, and uh, not the podcaster. And that was Adam Buxton, the podcaster, and not Adam Buxton, the footballer. Adam's podcast, which is called the Adam Buxton Podcast, is available on Acast or wherever you get podcasts. I can't recommend it highly enough. Thoroughly enjoyable rambly chats with all kinds of people like, uh, who has he had on? You know, John Ronson, who was on here, Malcolm Gladwell, Billy Connolly, as we talked in, in the, uh, in the chat there, which is an episode you really have to have a listen to. It's just wonderful. Kathy Burke, Ashling B, Johnny Marr, Mark Marin. I mean, just a whole pile of people in there that are well worth listening to. And they're quite timeless, these chats. They're not necessarily, um, uh, current affairsy. So they do last. So you have a whole archive to get back in in there, not to mention the fact that it's A, the catchiest podcast theme tune of all time, and the jingles uh, in the middle of stuff uh, are are brilliant too. Plus, there's a book out there right now as well, uh, available on Audible, available uh, wherever you get audiobooks. Wherever you get audiobooks. Uh, Ramble book, musings on childhood, friendship, family, and 80s pop culture. So thank you once again to Adam Buxton, and thank you also to all of you for listening, for putting me in your ears yet again. I do appreciate it. We've got loads to Actually, we, we've got a, a podcast coming uh, on Patreon first anyway, in which James uh, from Gunner Blog interviews me uh, about Arsblog. We go through the whole history of Arsblog, um, from the site starting to the podcast, to the Arscast Extra, to Arsblog News. And it is, it's more interesting than it sounds, I promise you. So it's a good chat. That's coming out early in the week on Patreon, where you can get it first. It will go on general release at some point. But if you want to, uh, if you want to get it first, you can get it on patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. Right. Right. That was a bit harsher than I meant it to be. Right. Have yourselves a lovely weekend. Uh, whatever it is you get up to, do it well. Uh, and we will uh, we'll catch you on the next one. So until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Lannis spotted a cat. Maybe. Or a magpie. What are you barking at? I see. What is it? Just giving out. Should shut the window. But it's a it's a lovely evening. (laughs) 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 